Hello, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... I was reminded of the guy who first looked into Tutankhamun's tomb and gasped, and somebody behind him said, What is it? And he said, I see things. I see wonderful things. The molecular biologist Harry Knoller has looked at life on the deepest levels, and he has seen some wonderful things. It's all part of a revolution in biological thinking that's been happening over the last half century, exposing the molecular mechanisms that make us all tick. In particular, Harry and colleagues have been exploring the workings of the microscopic cellular machines known as ribosomes. Now, you may not have heard much about ribosomes, which is kind of unfair, because while DNA and the genome get all the press these days, they would amount to very little without ribosomes. Ribosomes are what take the instructions written in DNA and put them into action. Our genome lays out the plan, but ribosomes make it happen. If you had a powerful enough microscope, you could see ribosomes scattered around the cells of any living thing, from us down to bacteria. At that level of magnification, they wouldn't look like much, just little specks. But if you were able to zoom in more closely, you'd see fantastically complex gadgets which we now know a lot about thanks in part to Harry Knoller's work. It's world-class work that some people think should have earned him a Nobel Prize by now. More about that and other subjects as the 7th Avenue Project continues. All right, on to today's interview with Harry Knoller, who I've been wanting to talk to for quite a long time. So I was happy to get him into our studio this past week. We started by talking about the early days of his career in 1965. Harry had grown up in the San Francisco Bay Area and had just gotten his Ph.D. at the University of Oregon when he was invited to do postdoctoral work at the famous Medical Research Council Lab, the MRC, in Cambridge, England. The MRC was a mecca for molecular biology, but it still wasn't an easy decision to go there since Harry was also an avid musician. He played tenor sax and he had a chance to join a touring blues band. But in the end, he opted for science and kept music as a sideline. When he got to Cambridge, he was immediately rubbing elbows with some of the most illustrious biologists of the era. There was Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the DNA double helix. There was Max Perutz, who'd won the Nobel Prize for uncovering the structure of the hemoglobin molecule using a technique called X-ray crystallography, which we'll learn more about today. And there was the guy who Harry Knoller found to be the most brilliant and imposing of them all, future Nobelist Sidney Brenner. He'd made key contributions to our understanding of the genetic code. Harry met Sidney at a very high-toned sherry party, just after he arrived in Cambridge. I'll let him describe the scene. Here was a big room full of dozens and dozens of brilliant people. I mean, the the dumbest person in the room seemed about ten times smarter than anyone I'd ever met in my life. It was it was very intimidating. And here I was with my uh, California boy 200-word vocabulary <laughs> trying to survive in the room. And in the middle of this overcomes Sidney Brenner, of all people, who was a fellow of King's College. And he walks up to me and says in his uh, distinctive uh, South African accent, Hello, I'm Sidney Brenner. Who are you? <laughs> and, you know, so I, I shrunk down to maybe two inches tall and 
told him who I was, and he said, what are you working on? And I said, well, I'm working on glyceraldehyde phosphate dehydrogenase, which is a, a sort of ordinary enzyme that a lot of people worked on at that time. He looked at me straight in the eye and said, that's stupid. If you're a protein chemist, why don't you work on something interesting like the ribosome? Uh-huh. Well, this is um, a great entry point for a, a conversation about the work that you're famous for on the ribosome, but I want to back up a little bit and find out how you got to Cambridge in the first place. You grew up in the Bay Area, yes? yes. And you got your uh, undergraduate degree at Berkeley. Yeah, the third generation Californian, born in Oakland, grew up in Oakland, Berkeley, and Orinda. My folks didn't have a lot of money. We were probably the poorest family in Orinda. And it was more or less assumed that when I went to college, it would be to to Cal, to UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. which I did. And uh, I was interested in science you know, from a very young age. And then one day they, they passed out a list of the majors that you could major in at Berkeley. And, and I went down the list and I saw biochemistry. And I said, whoa, I'm interested in biology. I'm interested in chemistry. I bet... I wouldn't have to give up either one if I mm-hmm. studied biochemistry. Mm. And so I went into the um, biochemistry department at Berkeley to ask them what biochemistry was. I walked into this building, and in the lobby, there were these huge blow-up pictures of viruses that had been taken uh, with the electron microscope. So, you know, you had poliovirus a foot in diameter on these pictures. You had tobacco mosaic virus, these long rods and tadpole-like pictures of the T2 bacteriophage virus. And I was just blown away. I said, this is it. You know, yeah. I don't know what that is, but... <laughs> You know, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Viruses are, are pretty cool looking. And like the bacteriophage you mentioned, the one that attacks bacteria, this is the one that looks sort of like the lunar landing module, yeah? Exactly. Amazing yeah. looking thing. Yes. So I, yes. I imagine it, it felt like, you know, a combination of science and maybe science fiction looking at those and yeah, thinking about exploring that world. Well, at that time, there was a lot of talk about the secret of life. And it was clear, you know, as it is to anybody who thinks about, you know, that living things are somehow qualitatively different from non-living things. And, and what is that? And that's what excited me. Yeah. And the people at Berkeley had gone a long way toward answering this question in reconstituting tobacco mosaic virus in the test tube. The t- tobacco mosaic virus is made of RNA and protein, and they could take it apart into its protein and RNA and put it back together into stuff that looked in the electron microscope, just like normal tobacco mosaic virus. And they went on to show that in infected tobacco plants and made these lesions in the tobacco plants just like uh, the natural virus. So so they're they're getting close to, to synthesizing something like life. I mean Life in a test tube. Life in a test tube. Yeah. And this was an amazing, uh, almost golden age for molecular biology. Uh, it was only a few years before that Watson and Crick, uh, you know, revealed the structure of the DNA molecule, and others had begun to piece together how DNA gives rise to protein and how the real essential machinery of life works. And you were there. 
it, it was just starting to happen. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about it other than seeing these pictures and yeah. reading things in Scientific American and so on. But I decided to become a biochemistry major. Uh, and then you didn't get to take biochemistry immediately. You had to take, you know, math and chemistry and physics and biology courses. And then finally in your senior year, you were allowed to take biochemistry. And, you know, so I went through all that and and I and I got there to the biochemistry course and and it was deadly boring it was tremendously disappointing they were talking <laughs> mainly about vitamins and fatty acids and metabolism and stuff like that and I just thought wow I've made a huge mistake <laughs> at what point then in your education did it change for you uh there was one course I would say that that really caught my attention and, and saved me for molecular biology, which wasn't a word yet. And that was Daniel Mazia's course called Physicochemical Biology. And this was a course given in zoology. And the, the message of Mazia's course was that the properties of living things that you see are expressions of the molecules, of, of the macromolecules, the large molecules, proteins, and DNA, and RNA, and so on, that lie underneath the surface of the organism. And he illustrated this with a few really striking examples. So organisms replicate. You give birth to children. If you're a bacterium or a yeast, you divide. Cells divide. Even in humans, uh, we, we grow by cell division. Uh, and he showed that underlying that is this molecule that divides. DNA replicates itself and divides. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one amazing message. Another one is living things move. Okay, They jump and run and swim and so on. So he took us down into that, into muscle, the structure of muscle, and showed us the molecules of muscle, actin and myosin, when you look at them, microscopically, they are contracting, just mm -hmm. like a muscle contracts, mm -hmm. and so on. And so, and Mazia was a terrific lecturer, and people knew about this course, and scientists from all over the Berkeley campus came to hear his lectures, not only undergraduates like me, but you had graduate students coming in, you had postdocs, other faculty even, and they would come in in their white coats and stand in the back of the room and listen to Mazia's mm -hmm. lectures. And he was very excited when he talked. His eyes rolled back in his head. And by the end of the lecture, he was literally foaming at the mouth. There was foam <laughs> in the corners of his mouth. I'm, well, I'm not exaggerating. Well, that might sound crazy to people, but it's probably hard for um, folks now in 2011 to imagine the magnitude of this revolution where it was made clear that if you wanted to really understand life, you had to understand molecules, and that was where the action is. I mean, as you're saying, if you want yeah. to understand muscles, you can see these proteins actually move relative to each other and contract. Yeah. If you want to understand reproduction, if you want to understand uh, heredity, you can look at the DNA molecule. I mean, the size and importance of that revelation can't be overstated. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't just the molecules, but the macromolecules, mm -hmm. the big molecules right. like proteins, DNA, RNA, that were so big that they could fold up in three dimensions into shapes that 
suddenly gave, well, what what physicists called emergent properties. Mm -hmm. That is, when you have a small molecule, you can predict what it's going to do. It just floats around and interacts with things in ways that chemists can now easily predict. But when you make big molecules, first of all, it's very hard to predict what their three-dimensional structure is going to be, but that is evolved and selected for in, in biology to produce these incredible three-dimensional sculpture-like molecules, which when they become a certain size and a certain level of complexity can do things that you could never predict. Uh, they can be enzymes, they can be muscles, they can be antibodies that protect us from viruses and bacteria uh, or even our own cancer cells. They can be nucleic acids like RNA and DNA, the, uh, the DNA storing the genetic information mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, and this was where the magic is, and that was just becoming clear at that time. Right, right. Um, now, so this period we're talking about, late 50s, early 60s, there's not only this um, scientific revolution going on, but there's sort of a social revolution going on, and you're, you're in Berkeley, so you're kind of... At, That's right. Yeah. ...at the very heart of it, the epicenter. What was your life like? Um, a guy who's thinking about going into chemistry, but were you also a 60s guy? I, I would say... Uh, I, w I was too young to be a beatnik, too old to be a hippie. <laughs> so I was caught between. I mean, we went over to North Beach uh, to the coffee gallery and uh, the coexistence bagel shop where all the you know jazz and poetry was going on. I was playing jam sessions at Northside. Uh, Pharaoh Sanders was uh, uh, one of the jazz musicians. I on the scene was then. lucky to wow jam with there. And Berkeley had always been uh, politically active. Uh, my, my uncle had gone there in the 30s, and, and, and he was involved in, in politics. And when I was there, I, I was not myself involved in politics, although I had many friends who were, including John Freund, who became one of the Chicago Seven uh, at a later point. Um, and there was, I believe, the beginnings of what later turned out to be the free speech movement and everything that is much more well-known that happened in the early 60s. So, so you said you, you weren't terribly politically active during your time at Berkeley, but were you getting interested in, involved with the counterculture uh, by the time you had, were in grad school, let's say? or Well, I, I was, I think, uh, my culture, apart from hanging out with students and scientists was uh, with jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. and, and so that that was a kind of counterculture of its own. Yeah. They spoke a secret language and listened to obscure recordings that no one else could get their hands on. And as, a, as, a, as a chemist or a chemist-to-be, were your services ever um, requested for other kinds of work, uh, you know, countercultural-related uh, chemistry projects? If you know what I mean. Oh, <laughs> well, in in those days, uh, people were were definitely getting into chemicals. Uh, it was the beginning of the uh, era of of uh, psychedelics. Yeah, uh, musicians, of course, had been smoking uh, pot since time immemorial. 
and there was a, a lot of that going around, definitely. Yeah. Um, there were in Berkeley, uh, especially there was a huge uh, culture, the beatnik culture, uh, and I knew a few of the beatniks, and 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 they were very colorful characters, with almost cartoon names, uh, Hube the Cube and Leonard the Locomotive and so on. Uh, These were quite vivid characters. Uh, Well, what about the psychedelic uh, era that was just, you know, beginning at that time, you being a biochemist? I'm just wondering, was there any overlap in those two worlds for you? Well, there were friends of mine from Berkeley and from North Beach who were on the edge of this, but they they were eating peyote, mm-hmm. so LSD was not widely available. Uh, but peyote was was known, and um, so we uh, experimented with peyote in those days, which was quite a uh, transformative experience. Did it have an effect on you the way it ha- had on so many people? Oh, I think definitely it did. I, I think I, uh, an experience that. Many people have, I think most people have had probably, and that is you you go to the bathroom and on the way out you see yourself in the mirror. And you you look at yourself in the mirror and see yourself for the first time uh, as others see you. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. And I I think many people have had that. Mm. Uh, A sort of external awareness of themselves, of being removed from... Yeah, just... Realization of who you are, yeah. almost objective way. Right, right, yeah. right. Interesting. So let's go back to that moment you mentioned um, a few minutes ago, when you arrived at uh, Cambridge University in 1965. This this is for a postdoc, a postdoctoral That's position. Right, yeah. And you met Sidney Brenner, Nobel Prize winner, very famous and intimidating uh, <laughs> biologist. And he said, uh, the work that you were doing or wanted to do was stupid. Why not look at the ribosome? Yeah. This would be a good time to tell our audience just what a ribosome is, and we'll have to be brief about it because there's a lot to it. Yeah. So if you think of your DNA as a kind of library that has everything about you recorded in it, the DNA mostly is a coded information bank that codes for proteins. Mm-hmm. And the proteins are the things that, that do the biology. They're the enzymes and muscles and skin and hair and antibodies and all, all these things that, that enable us to live. And so how do you go from DNA, this recorded information in your genes, Two proteins. Well, you can think of the ribosome as being the readout device. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. takes genetic information and reads it out into protein. Right. It doesn't do it directly on DNA, but it does it on a copy of the DNA called messenger RNA. So this message is made as a sort of copy of the DNA as RNA, mm-hmm. and that is grabbed by the ribosome and read out into protein. Yeah, so ribosome is like a little factory in a way. It uh, is. It takes yes. the instructions in the DNA and follows them to construct things. And as you say, there's this intermediate thing. There's the DNA, and then it's copied into RNA, which is the messenger. That messenger information is read by the ribosome. 
and tertiary right. protein. If we were to look at a, a cell, uh, just in with using a ordinary microscope, we might even see these little specks in it that are ribosomes. No, not with an ordinary microscope. You need an electron microscope. Electron microscope, you, yeah. you would see little tiny dots, and then with very sophisticated electron mi microscopic reconstructions, very powerful electron microscopes, you would see them as as shapes. Mm -hmm. And then with X-ray crystallography, you can see the individual atoms mm -hmm. and the whole thing. If not for ribosomes, DNA wouldn't be worth a whole lot. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like a recipe without a kitchen, you know, yes. or without a cook. Yeah. Um, so when Sidney Renner said to you, ribosomes, did the light bulb go on and, say, and, and, and did you immediately think, yes, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life investigating? No, I, I, I was uh, – <laughs> he, he didn't say ribosomes. He says, that's stupid. Uh, why don't you work on ribosomes? So I was mainly dealing with how stupid I was. <laughs> and uh, But over the next couple of weeks – um, I couldn't get what he said out of my head. And I started uh, asking about ribosomes. I read books on ribosomes and tried to figure out what was known about them. And they turned out to be very interesting. Uh, and almost nothing was known about them. So it was, it was ripe for plundering. I think I, I remember um, when I first learned about them, you know, as a kid, probably in grade school biology, and and the picture of them was just these little blobs. Uh, they actually looked like two blobs sort of smashed together, two like two balloons glued together. And there's this little valley, or um, excuse my crudeness, but like a butt crack between them. And, and the, the, the messenger RNA, this long strand of information, rode down the middle of this crack and, and was read off into proteins by the ribosome. And uh, it turns out there's a lot more to them than that. No, it's a very colorful <laughs> representation of ribosomes and not... Visually, not not far off the mark. Uh, <laughs> well, um, at the cartoon level. But yeah. I've been looking at some of the illustrations, uh, the three-dimensional uh, you know, graphic images of ribosomes as we now know them, thanks in part to your work. And they are a lot more uh, complicated than a couple of balloons smashed together. I mean, they are these fantastically um, convoluted three-dimensional surfaces um, in your mind's eye, what, what do you think a ribosome really looks like? If you look at it sort of out of focus, it's almost perfectly spherical. Uh -huh. As you bring it into focus and start seeing the details, uh, yeah, then you can see it's made of these two main subunits, a large one that's about twice as large as the small one, and then between them is where everything happens. And then as you zoom in more and more, you see more and more stuff. And you can, you know, and we've gone through this at several levels. And now we can now see it essentially at the atomic level. So we can see every atom in the ribosome. And, and it's incredibly complicated. I mean, I've been working on ribosomes over 40 years. I, I still struggle on a daily basis with getting my head around it because it's just so vast and complex. It, it's, in fact, the largest asymmetric molecular structure that has ever been solved. 
that, that we've ever determined the structure of at, 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 to atomic detail. Mm. And when you say asymmetric, you mean it's a lot more complicated than symmetrical structures. So symmetric would be a virus right. where you have a repeating right. structure such as a icosahedron, a sort of uh, Buckminster-Fuller repeating spherical shape, or uh, something like tobacco mosaic virus where you have repeating proteins. You have hundreds of copies of the same protein in a spiral or helical structure. Uh, right. So but, that's, but the ribosome yeah. is really asymmetric. It has irregular, 50 different yeah. proteins in it. and uh, Much more complicated, in other words. And it's got a lot of RNA, yeah. which is really uh, an unusual feature of it. So you were starting your work on the ribosome following um, Sidney Brenner's suggestion when you were in Cambridge. And then, um, as I understand it, you went on to continue that study in another postdoc in Geneva. Yes, yeah, so eventually... I actually started working on ribosomes in Geneva. Oh, in Geneva. Because no one was right. working on them. In oh, Cambridge. I see. And there was a group working on them. And then you came to uh, UC Santa Cruz only a couple of years after its founding. And I think, uh, was it 1968 when you came? 68, yeah. 68. What was UCSC like at that point? That was, you know, again, another kind of brand new and sort of groundbreaking experiment going on. Yeah, U- U- UCSC was very intriguing. Some people saw it as a sort of California version of Haverford or Antioch, uh, you know, as an undergraduate liberal arts right, college. Right. But the person who recruited me was uh, Terrell Hill, who's a famous theoretical chemist who had actually been at Oregon when I was a graduate student. And, uh-huh. uh, and he recruited me and his take was that UCSC was like an embryonic Cambridge or Oxford because of the college system. All right, UC Santa Cruz consists of these multiple colleges, each with its own small campus and residential area, and together they form the university at large. Yeah. Some of the problems were, of course, that the faculty uh, were expected to be, at least by some people, to be teaching at a small liberal arts college Mm -hmm. to undergraduates. However, your worth on the market in the academic world is not by your teaching. It's by your your uh, research, your publications. Uh, so there's a tension between the, the pressure to teach and the pressure to exactly. do research. And, yeah. of course, you were very serious about your research. But aside from all that, all the academic um, complications, was it an exciting place to come culturally in the year 1968, when you know so many things were happening, especially in this part of the world, <laughs> it was it was tremendously exciting. We had at that time uh, students fought with each other to get into UCSC. Uh, we took the cream of the crop, uh, and the, my first biochemistry class was really filled with nothing but brilliant students. Uh, they were they were really impressive, and they were they were a special kind of brilliant student. They were idealistic. They tended to be very creative, and and very interesting compared to the sort of uh, grinder type student that you might find in mm. a uh, conventional large. Uh, UC campus. We won't name names. <laughs> well, you so you arrived at this place that was physically beautiful, set in the redwoods on, on a hilltop outside of Santa Cruz, California, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. 
there was a lot of experimentation with, you know, cultural change going on. It was a very lively place, and you're a jazz musician as well. So there's a cultural scene, an art scene. But your work is being in a laboratory. It's it's sort of the opposite of the sensual environment outside the building, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, working in a laboratory is is an intensely social experience, uh, contrary to popular belief that scientists work in solitary yeah. conditions and ivory tower environment. We had a very small lab. Uh, we didn't have room for everybody to have their own bench space, so we had to work in shifts. When you're done with your experiment, clean up so the next person can do theirs, you know. And uh, so we're jammed in there and uh, had lab parties where we enjoyed each other's company. What would be a typical, you know, day's work in the lab? What would you actually be doing? Well, if, if you followed me around or, or uh, somebody in my lab around uh, while they were doing an experiment, you, it, it would be very unimpressive. There, <laughs> you would see them working in, in an environment that looks something like an ordinary kitchen with little plastic tubes and uh, devices that squirt very small amounts of liquid in or into or out of the tube called pipette men. And uh, little kids who watch their parents work in the lab saying, you're not doing anything. You're, you're just <laughs> mixing up little drops of water all day. Yep. Why, why is that interesting? So uh, visually, it's it's very unimpressive. Not the, much eye candy in there. Yeah. But um, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, we've gotten into x-ray crystallography that we use to figure out ribosome structure. And there visit environments that look very much like what everybody's uh, concept of science would be um, because we have to use a very strong x-ray beam that is only produced by a device called a synchrotron. And we're very fortunate to have two of the best synchrotrons in the world uh, nearby at, at uh, Stanford and at Berkeley. And what's a synchrotron? This is an instrument about the size of a football field. And it has particles, uh, usually electrons, circulating in it. And it's going around in this big donut-shaped thing that... It's a particle is, accelerator, that, yeah? It It is, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's in about the size of a football field. Right. And these electrons are traveling at very high speeds, so they have very high energies, and they give off x-rays. And people use these x-rays for all different kinds of experiments. So, so a synchrotron, this uh, electron accelerator, this very large ring-shaped electron accelerator, generates x-rays that you have been using, you said, for the last 10 or 15 years to investigate the structure of the ribosomes. Um, I want to find out what you've learned that way, but you weren't using x-ray crystallography before that? You were doing something else for this? No, I was doing biochemistry. Uh-huh. So mixing... My Mixing various My chemicals. Trade. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're trying to get uh, at a, a structure that's tiny, as we said. You can only see it with an electron microscope. Very tiny. Billionths of an inch across. Is that about right? Uh, ribosome is about a millionth of an inch. Across. In diameter. So really tiny. Yeah. And you're trying to get at it, learn about its intricate operation 
by doing chemical reactions and measuring the results. Can, can you give us a really simplified sense of how you can investigate a structure that small using, you know, essentially test tubes and pipettes and things like that? Well, yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, and we, we treat them like chemicals is the answer. Uh-huh. We don't do experiments, biochemical experiments, on just one ribosome. We use jillions of ribosomes <laughs> so that we can see what they do. For example, ribosomes make proteins, as we said before. And so a typical thing you do with ribosomes is measure their ability to make a protein. So how do you do that? Well, one way of doing it is to make the proteins out of radioactive stuff so that if you make a protein, you can detect its radioactivity. So proteins are made out of amino acids, and so if you use radioactive amino acids, you will they will assemble by the ribosome into a radioactive protein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can just throw in the ribosomes, the amino acids, and a bunch of other stuff, and at the end, when you think they've had a chance to make a protein, you precipitate them. And if you get a radioactive precipitate, it pretty much means that you made a protein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a very crude and simple sure. way of, of doing it, but it works. And uh, that, that was the basis of what most people did for decades, working on ribosomes. Um, and as we said, you're looking at this tiny little machine, you're piecing together a picture of it that really gets down to the the, the basic parts, the moving parts in it, and and all of the um, detailed molecular structure of it. And you're doing so using what you just said are fairly crude methods, these macroscopic methods. You're not really looking at the ribosome. You're You're not really holding it and turning it around and looking at it. What is it like to spend decades inferring the detailed microscopic structure is something that you never get to really look at, you know? Well, it's it's tremendously frustrating because, <laughs> I mean, an, another aspect of, of my upbringing was uh, working on cars and motorcycles. Oh, that really? Was, uh, wow. The, the, another subculture that yeah. I grew up in starting in high school was guys who were into cars and bikes, and we used to take them apart and put them back together again. And so... A natural outcome of this with working on on macromolecules was these things are machines. How do they work? What are the what are the parts? How do they how do you put them together and how does that enable them to work? And so we began actually with glimpses of the ribosome structure from electron microscopy, very crude images, low resolution, that you couldn't see the details, but you could get the general idea. And then we, we started also to figure out their structure indirectly. So the, the ribosome is made of proteins and RNA. It's about two-thirds RNA, one-third protein. And we worked out what's called the secondary structure of the RNA. So the, the RNA is made up of a lot of little double helices, very much like DNA, but all strung together in a kind of huge, complicated uh, uh, three-dimensional array. And we worked out what those helices were uh, in the RNA without actually knowing how they folded together in three dimensions. So that was one approach that we took. 
Uh, I uh, interject here a little bit. When I said earlier that my my first exposure to a ribosome, this little protein-making factory found in um, cells across all life forms, um, it was just the image of these, you know, this blob consisting of two lobes and a kind of groove between them where uh, messenger RNA would slide and the instructions would get read off and made into protein. Um, now when I look at uh, today's images of a ribosome, I, oh my God, it's so complex. It's, it's like taking uh, a bunch of really long necklaces with beads on them and scrunching them into a ball so that what you get is this tangle of stuff that without being a real expert, you wouldn't know what to make of it at all. If you call me an expert, I, I, for the most part, I still don't know what to make of it all. But yeah, that's a very good rendering of, of what the ribosome looks like at, at, at this level. And uh, the pictures that, that you've seen are, are, are even simplified pictures. Mm-hmm because uh, they they represent the structure not at the atomic level but at a simplification of the of the atomic level structure so when you look at the atomic level structure it is breathtakingly complex it really i mean you can you can zoom into one tiny little corner of it and and spend weeks just rummaging around trying to figure out what it's all about um your lab, among others, has produced some animations, I guess, that sort of show some of the activities that go on in a ribosome. Yeah, there, we have some a few movies that people can download from our website. Where would they uh, go to see them? Uh, so if you Google RNA Center at UCSC and go to ribosomes uh, and follow the links therein. You, it'll have uh, pictures of various kinds, and then it'll have movies that you can download uh, if you have trouble uh, <laughs> sleeping at night. <laughs> and we'll post a link to some of those movies of ribosomes on our website, our website being 7thAvenueProject.com. That's the name of this show, The 7th Avenue Project. I'm the host, Robert Polly. And today I'm talking to Harry Noller. He's Robert L. Sinsheimer, Professor of Molecular Biology at UC Santa Cruz. Um, the, uh, you said you had a background in, in, in car and motorcycle mechanics, and we think of man-made machines. You, know, you, you look at them, and you can sort of start to say, first of all, I can see what the indiv- individual parts are. And in many cases, if they're mechanical, you can see how they work. You know, this, this rotates, and therefore this moves, and this shaft turns a wheel over here. When I look at these animated images of ribosomes, what I see, I hate to say it, but I just see these hairballs. That's a a good analogy. (laughs) And all these different hairs in them are moving in different ways, accomplishing something pretty fantastical, but it just doesn't relate to anything I've ever dealt with on on a macroscopic level. It's just not something I can intuitively grasp. Well, we're just starting, uh, just in recent years, the last couple of years, uh, to see uh, the first glimpses of the mechanics of the ribosome. So these are molecular mechanics. Uh, it has moving parts, and um, we've, we've known this for a long time. We've even known probably what is moving, but uh, very recent structures that have been solved in our lab and in other labs around the world are starting to give us 
the first frames with which we can animate the movements of the ribosome. And so when we look at these, when I look at them from my cars and motorcycles background, <laughs> they look very different. Mm -hmm. They are not rigid objects as man-made objects tend to be, uh, but they look like they're alive. Mm. The whole thing just kind of oozes and and undulates, and we think it's to a large extent the properties of the ribosomal RNA and, and why ribosomes do contain RNA instead of just being all made out of protein. Now, once upon a time, people thought they were just protein, right? Well, they knew that they contain RNA. Oh, yeah? And that's why they're called ribosomes, for ribonucleic acid. Right, which is what RNA stands for. Which yeah. is what RNA stands for, exactly. But but I guess you're um, credited with having discovered that the RNA is really a big component and, and essential to their operation. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, I was a, mainly trained as a protein chemist, and so there were... More than fifty proteins in the ribosome, so I thought, well, I'll I'll just stake out a couple of those proteins and figure out what they're doing, and that'll be my my niche. Uh, and so we tried to inactivate the ribosomal proteins chemically to figure out which ones would be interesting to work on, but they wouldn't inactivate. And instead, we found ourselves inactivating the RNA. And it led us to propose in the early 70s that the RNA is really functional. It's not just as everybody thought at that time, simply a structural scaffold to hang the proteins on. Uh -huh. So the idea was that the proteins, as always, are the, are the functional molecule and the, uh, and the RNA is just holding them in where they need to be spatially to do mm -hmm. their jobs. And, mm -hmm. and we completely reversed that paradigm, uh, but to say it was not widely accepted would be an understatement. Uh, I gave a talk at Berkeley one time, and afterwards my host said that he'd asked a, a, a famous colleague what he thought of my talk, uh, and the quote was, what a crackpot idea. <laughs> so that that was our welcome uh, into the scientific community for our uh, idea that the ribosomal RNA was functional. Well, let, let, let's say why it was thought to be crackpot. And just let me take a stab at it. Tell me where I go wrong here. But until that point, RNA was known to be, of course, this, this information-carrying molecule, very similar to DNA. And they also knew that it might operate structurally in the uh, ribosome, maybe like the chassis of a car. But you were proposing that it's the engine of the car. And, and people didn't know that RNA could do that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So a whole new role for this amazing molecule. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to do something really difficult right now, and, and that is in a very brief time, without getting te highly technical, just give us a little taste of the complex operation of the ribosome as you and, and fellow scientists have now pieced it together. Give us some idea of what happens when this long strand of chemical information, uh, RNA, this is messenger RNA now, this is not the ribosomal RNA we were talking about a moment ago, approaches this little factory called a ribosome in order to be turned into protein. What happens? The whole thing is very complicated. <laughs> uh, and I'll, 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 I'll focus on the essentials. The, the 
messenger RNA has a, a signal built into it that says start here. And the ribosome binds to that start signal. And then the next job is to bring in the individual amino acids that will be stitched together like beads on a string to make the protein. So the messenger RNA is a chain, and the protein that it's making is also a chain. And by the way, the process we're describing is called translation, translating that uh, genetic alphabet carried in the RNA into the alphabet of protein, which is in amino acids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and that's a very good point. So translation is a very apt term because you're going from the nucleic acid language into a completely unrelated language of 20 amino acids. So it's like going from Chinese into Spanish or something like that. Uh, they're unrelated language. You need to translate. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is through the genetic code. And this was something that was discovered while I was a graduate student around the mid-early uh, 60s. Each amino acid is coded for by three letters of the RNA language. So how does the ribosome figure out which amino acid goes with which three-letter yeah. codon, as they're called? It does so with another RNA molecule called a transfer RNA, which is sort of a bilingual molecule. At one end, it can read the uh, codon of the messenger RNA, and at the opposite end of the tRNA is the amino acid that goes with that codon. So what the ribosome does is make sure that the right tRNA gets matched up with the right codon. Right. And then the next tRNA comes in and brings the next amino acid, and then the ribosome joins those two amino acids, and that's the beginning of the protein, and so on. So it's like a little assembly line. You, you, you bring the tRNA in with its amino acid, you hook it up to the next one, and then you move it over, bring the next tRNA in, and hook up the next amino acid. And this is happening at something like 20 times per second. Wow. So moving what are at the molecular level are large molecules, the tRNAs, which have very, they're as, as big as a, a protein. Yeah. And, and they're being moved through very quickly. And the ribosome is doing this by its machine-like movements, but the machine-like in the biological sense, these, these, these kind of undulations and squirming movements that it has. Uh, and this is what we're just now beginning to see for the first time. Uh, how, are you, few months. how are you able to see it? We're, we're able to see it by comparing different static pictures of the ribosome obtained by crystallography. In, in a nutshell, crystallography is where you sort of crystallize a molecule and then you use x-rays, bounce x-rays off of it and, 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 and look right. at the patterns that they emit yeah. and, and figure I mean, out the structure that way. The problem is you can't, if you had an x-ray microscope, you could just look at the ribosome. Yeah. The problem is you cannot focus x-rays. Uh -huh. So you get defocused x-rays. You get what's called a diffraction pattern uh, when you shine x-rays on a crystal. And so you get this three-dimensional collection of spots. In the case of the ribosome, 
Um, there are over a million spots. Oh, boy. And from that, you have to work back to what the actual structure yeah. is. We should emphasize that though X-ray crystallography had been used on molecules in the past, going back into the 1950s and maybe even before, right? But but these were so simple by comparison to an entire ribosome, which is multiple molecules grouped together in fantastically complex ways. So, yeah, the, so the the structure that Perutz saw, the hemoglobin, was yeah. about 100 times larger than the biggest structures that had been solved before. Small molecules like uh, antibiotics or vitamins. Mm-hmm. But uh, now the ribosome is that much bigger than hemoglobin. It's yeah. 100 times the yeah. size yeah. of a protein. Right. Uh, so every step of the way is 100 times the job. Uh, so... But after years of working with sort of non-visual uh, techniques, you, you've got your hands on a visual technique, X-ray crystallography. Yep. That must have felt really good to be able to start getting pictures. It was tremendously exciting. You know, we were the first people ever to see this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you think, you know, of human existence of 100,000 or more years uh, you aren't going to see the ribosome until now. This So here's a tremendous accident of good fortune that I happen to be born during this time. But the idea that I would be among the two or three people to see this for the first time was quite almost eerie, I would say. And I was reminded of the, of the guy who first looked into uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, <laughs> and, and and gasped, and somebody behind him said, "What is it?" And he said, "I see things. I see wonderful things." Oh wow! Um, you had been, you know, working on this since, as we said, the mid '60s, when you finally got this, you know, visual data. This was when 1999, 1999, 98, 99, when yeah. we saw the first electron density maps so, of the whole ribosome. So 30-plus years of chasing this sort of elusive figure, <laughs> like Holmes chasing Moriarty or something. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you get a, you know, you finally get a photograph. You get a picture, you know. must have been really something. No, it, was, it was quite amazing. Yeah. Because... Everyone in the ribosome field thought about the ribosome and imagined the ribosome and imagined a specific structure. And, of course, there were terrible arguments at meetings because everyone had a different structure in their head. Yeah. But here it, here it was. So was, did it correspond to the one that you'd imagined? That was one of the most amazing things, that we had actually figured out a lot of stuff correctly amazing, without, yeah. without crystallography. That's and incredible. Uh, one day, um, we, we discovered the position of one of the transfer RNAs, and we did this by comparing the data from crystals that contained the transfer RNA versus ones that didn't. And so by subtracting one data set from the other, we got what you call a difference map, which only shows the thing that is missing in one and present in the other. And it was at very low resolution, but we saw this, thing in there that looked like a transfer RNA, a very crude one, but there it was, and it was sitting right where we thought it would would oh, be, you boy. know, within, of course, the uncertainty of, 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 of what we knew, but it was 
that was probably the uh, wow moment yeah. uh, where we said, <laughs> and it also told us that we were we were on the right track crystallographically, that we had the right phases and et cetera, et cetera. So come 2009, Harry, I, I knew about your work, and I would hear people say, you know, Harry Noller, he could get the Nobel Prize one of these days. Um, this work of piecing together the ribosome is is extremely important and monumental in its scope. And, you know, this is the fundamental machinery of life we're talking about. And now we've got a really detailed description. Uh, in 2009, um, the Nobel Prize uh, for Chemistry was awarded for work on the ribosome. Did you know, first of all, the prize was going to be given for that work that year? Did you have an inkling that that no. was going to happen? So you never know when the, the Swedish Academy or whatever no, is going to... it's all very yeah, secretive. Is, yeah, it's going to do this. But they awarded it, and there are some rules with the Nobel Prize. They can only give it to three people maximum, even though most major scientific discoveries, you know, have many more people involved in them. Yeah, there's no exception for the ribosome. I mean, there have been hundreds and hundreds of really brilliant people contributing to this field, and, you know, uh, you can't... You just say, you know, these are the the people that did something, although those three people who shared the prize made enormous contributions and are very deserving. Well, those three were not you, uh, though some people thought for sure you would, you would be one of them when that award was given for the work on the ribosome. Um, and when it happened, I mean, there were a lot of people rooting for you. I, I, there was even a Facebook page called, uh, I think it was called Harry Noller Nobel Prize Watch or something like that. I think it's still out there, and you can still look at it from 2009. I just wanted to read some of the comments. Uh, one was, every time Harry Noller doesn't win the Nobel Prize, God kills a kitten. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think God killed 100 litters on Wednesday. Another one, I call shenanigans. Another one, F you, Sweden. <laughs> And, and yet another one. Harry was robbed. Um, did you have any of those sentiments yourself uh, when you heard the, the Nobel Prize had been given for work that you had been a major contributor to, but you weren't a recipient? Well, first of all, I was not at all surprised at, at the uh, recipients. I mean, Tom Stites, Venki Ramakrishnan, and Adi Yonat are, are uh, great scientists who all made absolutely fundamental contributions, particularly in the structure. The one tinge of disappointment, I, I would say, is that um, it would have been great for UCSC that I think, you know, that unfortunately uh, academic institutions are often measured by the number of uh, National Academy members and uh, Nobel laureates they have. Uh, it's almost a linear scale. Yeah. As for me, you know, I've I've gotten plenty of of prizes and awards, certainly more than I deserve, uh, as it is. And and you know, I think there are many downsides also to you know you you start getting more invitations than you can possibly yeah. keep, yeah. and <laughs> many of them are very hard to turn down, and, and your your life stops being your own, you know. And this I, is true. I, I, I know yeah. these guys uh, very well, and I know they're all experiencing this. Um, you and other researchers like the three who got the Nobel Prize and, and yet other unnamed people um, have, you know, built this amazingly uh, detailed picture of how ribosomes, these little molecular factories in our cells, work. Um, but there's still more to find out. You're still working on this. 
Yes, absolutely. This is this is going to keep going on for a very long time. Yeah, I picked a great problem. <laughs> I didn't have to switch problems twenty years ago. Uh, it's still challenging and exciting, uh, and there's still many unanswered questions. Harry, when you imagine or reconstruct uh, in the form of these animations, these computer animations, or, or otherwise describe this molecular machine, the ribosome, groups of molecules doing amazingly complex and amazingly sort of um, deliberate, and I'm not trying to imply anything spooky here, but these are very, very orderly, very purposeful, you know, actions making proteins in a very uh, predictable and uh, logical way and acting autonomously, you know? What's your, your feeling about this? Well, uh, I, I mean, what you're impinging on here is do, do, do you get, uh, does one get uh, creationist uh, urges? Uh, uh, I was thinking... Or, or intelligent design uh, Oh, I was, I was actually, I was hoping not to imply that. I was just ho hoping to say that when you look at the way molecules work together, no. you are seeing something very lifelike. Yeah, well, we come back to, to Dan Mazia and his lectures in, in that great course I took at Berkeley. Foaming at the mouth. Yes. <laughs> and, and, I mean, his message was that, that the, um, when you see some property of, of a living thing, likely what underlies it is a molecule doing that thing. Yeah. And... Uh, when I look at the ribosome in these animations, it, it doesn't look like a molecule to me, or at least what I used to think a molecule to be. It, it looks like it's alive. Yeah. It, its motions are, are, are really uncanny. The, um, the whole thing moves. There's no static part of it. If you look closely, every part of it is, is moving, even though there's 100 thousand atoms or more, they're all moving. And I think it's going to force us to think about molecules or certainly the ribosome in, in new ways. What do you mean by that? There seems to be, just from looking at, at, at this uh, animation, it looks to me like every atom in the ribosome knows about the existence and the movement of every other atom. That it's uh, the opposite of the piston and the connecting rod and the crankshaft and the automobile. I mean, the parts of the automobile engine are absolutely static. Others are moving. Some are only moving at certain times and so on. But this whole thing is all moving together. Yeah. And, and how it does that is... Uh, a complete mystery. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wasn't trying to get spooky or mystical or anti-scientific at all in my question. And um, I assume you aren't in your answer either. Well, no, I, I said that not so much in anticipation that you're thinking that, but, um, but that it's very hard to sit and look at this incredibly complex machine that seems absolutely tuned for what it does, and so complex, I mean, how did it get there? I mean, that's that's really the killer question. It is. Uh, beyond all of the mysteries we're trying to solve <laughs> about how it works. But, you know, if we, if we are 
true believers in, in evolution. There was molecular evolution that led to life in the first place, and you couldn't have life without the ribosome. So how did you get this incredibly complex machine in the first place? Now, I'm going to put the onus on you then, because I wasn't attempting to go the intelligent design route, but some people might hear your comment and start to think you're going that route. You're not, though, are you? No. <laughs> no. Just because you can't readily explain something doesn't mean you have to abdicate and, and go mystical. Right, I mean, right. But although the, the, the ultimate, I think the ultimate d discovery would be proving that there's a mystical solution to mm -hmm. something that mm -hmm. you can't explain mm -hmm. in terms of chemistry and physics. But, mm -hmm. of course, we always, so far, we, we can. Um, um, yeah, um, you know, we, I think we operate on the assumption intuitively, we human beings, that when you see something really complicated and seemingly purposeful, it must be made by an intelligence like our own, usually, by us usually. <laughs> uh, but, but maybe, you know, what people like you are, are showing is that there is in the actual, uh, there is this potential in the actual physical materials of the universe, especially the complicated ones, to begin to function on their own and do things, you know, without a guiding hand anywhere. It's in the, it's in the very characteristic of, the, of, of these complex molecules and the three-dimensional structure especially, which is what you had said earlier. That's right, yeah. It's, it, life is an emergent property of matter, is what the physicists would say. Um, not mystical maybe, but I'm going to still say, for me, it feels magical. Absolutely, yeah. I have, it's the ribosome is, is an amazing device, uh, no question. Well, thanks, Harry. This has been um, this has been mind blowing. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, Robert. Harry Noller is Robert L. Sinsheimer, professor of molecular biology and director of the Center for Molecular Biology of RNA at UC Santa Cruz. This has been the Seventh Avenue Project. We're on the web at seventhavenueproject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. <laughs>